Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week in the podcast, we welcome the Reverend Kyle Meyerd-Scott. It's hard to feel motivated to work for a future that we can't imagine. And I think so many of us have only heard or mostly heard stories of a future of cataclysm, of doom, of apocalypse, of loss, right? So, so much of the future when we think about climate change is shrouded in grief, in despair, and in loss, which are not motivating emotions. Um, but what if what if the future we create is better than we think it could be, or is better than we even imagined? Um, what what if we what if we get this right and we end up creating a more just, uh, a healthier, safer world for us and the people that we love? Kyle and I, though different generations, share a similar background as evangelicals. In fact, both from Michigan. And earlier this year, the New York Times brought Kyle and I together for a conversation about leadership and expanding evangelicals' moral imaginations, you might say, beyond the usual hot-button cultural issues. So this podcast is in many ways a continuation of what I really found to be a great conversation. Until recently, Kyle served as vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network. That's a phrase many of you might be surprised to hear, but it's for real, as he is too. And before that, he was the national organizer of the group Young Evangelicals for Climate Change. He is also the author of a recently published book, Following Jesus in a Warming World. That's as contemporary as could be. So read the book, Following Jesus in a Warming World. So Kyle, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. So one question I often like to ask my guests, and you can feel free to take this in any any direction you want is, Kyle, how's your spirit these days? How's your spirit doing? I love the question. Um, my spirit has been tired, uh, I think for longer than I've wanted to admit to myself. Um, but it's, it's finding rest right now. Um, I uh, have been doing uh, environmental justice work at the intersection of church and climate action um, for over 10 years now. Um, for a long time, I think I did it with a mix of kind of adrenaline and gritted teeth. Um, I, I had heard the, the, the stories of burnout, um, always kind of thought I was invincible and didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, and it, it caught up to me a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm really enjoying some, some deep rest right now. Um, I'm enjoying my two boys. I'm enjoying, uh, summer fading into fall in Michigan, which is my all-time favorite part of the year. So uh, right now in this moment, my spirit is restful. So you're taking a bit of a rest and sabbatical break uh, from your old position to whatever comes comes as new. That's always a wise thing to do. I'm glad you, when we're younger, we often think of ourselves as invincible. <laughs> and I'm glad you found out that you're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, I'm not that young anymore. Um, so I, I think it's just the wisdom that comes with age. That's true. So let's make this very real and contemporary. We are already currently feeling the effects of climate change. July 2023 was the hottest month ever recorded on Earth according to the experts, which is quite amazing. 
and that heat was largely driven by human action, floods, hurricanes, droughts, wildfires. Wildfires. Things looked pretty bleak out there, many would say. At the same time, many politicians in the U.S. don't seem all that willing to actually do anything about it. I was very struck, uh, perhaps you saw it too, in the first uh, Republican presidential debate, uh, a young Catholic uh, asked the question of the candidates. Uh, Fox gave him a chance to ask the question, which I was pleased to see. He said, he asked them, would they calm young people's fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change? Now, from the candidates' answers, I don't think many fears were calmed. But what did you make of that question appearing uh, surprising to me in the middle of a Republican debate from a, from a young person? And uh, how much hope do you hold out for political solutions right now? Yeah, I, I was really pleased to see that question asked and, and to um, see airtime given by Fox to that question. I think it speaks to the organization that was behind that question, the American Conservation Coalition, a group of young conservatives um, that, that I've worked with in the past and have a lot of respect for, who have been organizing for a long time um, within the Republican Party, pushing the Republican Party forward, using their moral authority as young people. Um, to, to say, listen, guys and women, um, we got we to gotta get our act together on this thing because this, this, we can no longer afford for climate change to be partisan um, because if, if it continues to be that way, the party is going to lose an entire generation. Um, I think that's a really powerful message. And I, I think the fact that the question was asked, even if the candidates' answers were a bit lacking, speaks volumes. Um, when I started at Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, we went to uh, all three of the debate sites that happened that year in 2016, the general election debate sites um, where Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were debating. And our campaign was to put public pressure on the moderators to ask a question about climate change. Um and uh, I, I think in one of the debates, there was a question about energy, didn't really touch on climate change at all. Um, otherwise, nothing. And that was a general debate, general election debate. Fast forward seven years, and here we are in 2023, and the question is being asked at a Republican primary debate. Um, I, I find hope in that. I, I think the conversation is becoming mainstream in a way that we could have only dreamed of in 2016. Now, uh, we have to do a whole lot more than just mainstream the conversation. <laughs> uh, we have to mainstream solutions. Um, and that's going to take a whole nother heavy lift or a series of heavy lifts. So I, I'm hopeful and I'm encouraged that that question was asked. Um, but we have a whole lot more work to do. And uh, I think young people, again, I think it's it's another uh, example of the, the kind of power that young people actually have to push this forward. And I, I think the worst thing young people can do is get cynical about the process, about the system and say, uh, the system doesn't work for me. It's not for me. My voice isn't heard and to check out. Um, because I promise you, if millions and millions of young people stand up, vote, uh, pressure their lawmakers on this topic, uh, we will have political solutions to climate change. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that we're going to have political solutions to climate change regardless. It's just a matter of how quickly we're going to get there and how many people have to suffer until we do. So I find it interesting that you know the group he's from and have even worked with them before. So he's not the only young Republican who's raising these questions in this. It, 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 so even it, it, on the Republican side, certainly Democratic side, you really sense a growing number of, of young people who want to press that question into our political narrative. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the evidence that I've seen, anecdotal and otherwise, um, among young people is that climate change is becoming less and less a partisan um, issue and more of a generational issue. I think among older Americans, it's uh, a, a political, there's a political divide, depending on if you're a Democrat or a Republican, what you believe and what you want to see done. Among younger folks, um, it, it's across the board. Uh, they, they accept the reality of climate change. They're scared about their futures and they want to see their leaders put real solutions into action. And that's across the board, regardless of party. Now you've worked for a long time, as you said, on, uh, convincing evangelicals to care about climate change. Now, you've also said it's been difficult work at times, and you write in your book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, the topic of climate change is anathema in many churches and simply ignored in so many more. I heard you say that there's a just a silence on so much of this. <clears throat> so it reminds me of my own background in Michigan when racism was a topic that was ignored and just not talked about. Why has climate change been such a uh, taboo topic or ignored topic among so many white evangelicals? Mm. Oh, man, that's such a good question and such a, a tough one to untangle. I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of answers to that question, um, and I've thought about it uh, quite a bit. So uh, just a few that, that I'll lift up. One, I think, is there continues to be a strain of suspicion toward the scientific enterprise within modern evangelicalism, which I trace historically through the fundamentalist movement here in the United States, particularly the, the, um, the evangelical movement that comes through the religious right in the 80s and 90s. You can draw a straight line to the fundamentalist movement of the 1800s, which in large part set itself over against the modernists who were trying to find ways to integrate scientific discovery with Christian faith and scriptural revelation. Um, the fundamentalists said, no, absolutely not. We have to take a stand somewhere. And it is here. Uh, scripture and science are diametrically opposed and we, cho we choose scripture. Um, obviously, it's not the only place where we find resistance to science. We, we can go all the way back to the uh, Middle Ages in the Catholic Church with Galileo and Copernicus. Um, but you can really draw a pretty straight line from that history to the, the modern evangelical movement today. And even though there are um, large portions of the evangelical community that do engage scientific discovery thoughtfully and, and um, well and through the lens of their faith, there continues to be um, a very large segment of the, evangel the modern evangelical movement that inherited that suspicion. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. And that's partly why we see uh, things like vaccine skepticism so prevalent among uh, white evangelicals, um, other, other scientific issues where there is suspicion. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, another part of it is uh, with the rise of the religious right in the 80s and 90s, which uh, I know you know well, Jim, <laughs> um, you know this history very well. With, with the rise of that movement, uh, a lot of evangelical Christians were sold a bill of goods, and they were many of them were told that in order to live out your faith authentically in the public square, um, these are the issues you need to care about, and these are these are the positions you need to take on these issues. Um, abortion obviously has come to be one of, if not the uh, most dominant issue on that bill of goods, but other ones are LGBTQ rights, feminism, 
and environmentalism and energy policy. And I, I trace some of this in my book, but um, a lot of it goes back to the 1980 election between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter's response to the energy crisis in the 70s uh, was largely panned and Reagan saw an opening. Um, and he appealed to uh, energy freedom, a laissez-faire capitalism that uh, empowered the fossil fuel companies to pursue their oil-rich fortunes, mostly unencumbered. Uh, and many of those oil and gas companies um, were founded by fundamentalist evangelical businessmen. Uh, you can trace this history in a great book called Anointed with Oil, um, Darren Dochuk, tracing the history of oil in the United States. So Reagan um, marshaled the forces of this moral majority movement and uh, kind of embedded in the ideology of that movement, this anti-environmental regulation, uh, pro-fossil fuel uh, policy platform plank that, that continues today. And I think a lot of Christians, um, generations of evangelical Christians, had their political imaginations formed by the religious right. And many of them were told all you have to do to be a good Christian in public is to vote for the candidate with the R behind their name, because they're the ones who um, agree with us on the issues that matter. And one of those issues was environment and energy. Um, and we've seen we've seen strains within the evangelical church try to resist, try to push back against that narrative. But I think we've seen that um, the history of that story that's been told to millions and millions of evangelical Christians. Uh, is really strong and that message is really powerful. I don't think most people listening would know much about what you just said. You had a line there saying that many of the founders or CEOs of oil companies were fundamentalists. Uh, that's interesting. Say more about that. I remember First Baptist Church Dallas, a huge early evangelical megachurch before others were there, had big oil money in that church. So say more about fundamentalists who were founders or CEOs of uh, oil companies. Yeah, yeah. So the the, the Eastern oil fields were, were dominated by John D. Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Um, he, he had uh, consolidated close to 90% of the world's oil fields, um, at least in the, the United States oil fields um, by the late 1800s. Uh, in Pennsylvania, other parts of the East, Ohio, uh, the West was largely untapped. And uh, John D. Rockefeller was also uh, a good kind of mainline Baptist Christian. Um, and there was competition uh, against Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller for control of the Western oil fields. And it turns out that a lot of these tycoons, uh, they called them wildcat oil men, small operators, not big behemoths like Rockefeller and Standard Oil. They were kind of independent operators, scrappy, kind of um, drill and done uh, in and out of different areas. Many of these businessmen uh, ended up being disproportionately uh, evangelical fundamentalist. Um, and again, Darren Dochuk traces his history really well in his book, Anointed with Oil. Um, but uh, essentially, there, there became this, uh, this fight, this competition between um, Rockefeller's Standard Oil and the, the independent, scrappy, wildcat oilmen um, who raced him to the West and ended up uh, occupying many of the oil fields 
in the West. Um, and so they competed not just in business, but they competed in faith. I mean, this was a period in the history of the United States where uh, revivals were happening. People were uh, kind of competing for the meaning and definition of faith in America. I already referenced the modernist and fundamentalist controversy in the 1800s. Um, there was significant strife and division within the church, the Christian church here in the United States. Um, and it was no different between Rockefeller and Standard Oil and kind of his mainline uh, Protestant Protestantism and the evangelical fundamentalism of the wildcat oil men who had uh, dominated the Western frontiers. Um and because Rockefeller was so big, he could advocate for really strict, stringent regulations um, that only he could navigate, right? It would effectively put all of his smaller, poorer competition out of business because they can't pay to comply. So he advocated for a really strict regulatory regime around oil extraction. And the oil cat Wild men, the wildcat oil men um, advocated for little to no regulation because that's the only way they could survive. Uh, when, when they were um, smaller, had less capital, they, they couldn't comply with, uh, with burdensome regulation. Uh, Reagan tapped into that. Um, he recognized that um, there was this, this overlap between uh, evangelical businessmen in the oil business and uh, a policy position that was very light on environmental regulation. Very interesting. The Hunt family, of course, famous Hunt family, I think was one of those. And as I think they were very tied into First Baptist Church Dallas. I think making those connections like you just did is really important between theology on the one hand and business, for example, on the other. Hand. And and when, when you look at a lot of those churches, um, especially in the South and, and in those, those regions where oil has played an important role, I don't think you'll be surprised at all to find that. You don't have to dig too deep to find uh, oil money somewhere in the story of a lot of those churches. Well, there are Hunt family members that I know broken away uh, from the family on these questions, it would be be with you now on all the environmental questions. So that's a hopeful sign. Also, this issue of science in scripture, uh, that frustrates, as you know, a lot of evangelical scientists. Uh, one, I, I have become friends with Francis Collins, NIH, but also the Genome Project. And and he's deeply Christian. You could probably, he'd probably call himself evangelical. Yet he was criticized by, by, uh, by the left for being at NIH because he was a Christian and people were attacking him because he was a person of faith and he was one of the, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met on one one hand and yet he was he's deeply uh, troubled by this antipathy to, to, to science which raises how this is a symptomatic issue uh, climate but a larger issue which is misinformation whether it's COVID-19 or the vaccine or the big lie perpetrated by Donald Trump or climate change. So many white evangelicals, a majority really, are not on the side of truth here. And yet we're supposed to be the people in society who care most about the truth. What's happening here and why have white evangelicals become so susceptible to misinformation and outright lies? I think you're right on. I think at root, we are in the midst of an epistemological crisis. It's hard to know what is truth um, and and where to look for ultimate truth, which, as you say, is just the height of irony for Christians who claim to know the ultimate truth. Um, so, yeah, man, um, again, I think it's a really complicated 
answer. I do know that when it comes to climate change and white evangelicals, uh, there is interesting research being done and some some evidence pointing to um, the reality that uh, some of the fossil fuels, uh, billions of dollars worth of misinformation that they've been pouring into the public discourse for the last 30 plus years to great effect, it should be said. I mean, that has been an investment well worth it for them. Um, a lot of that has been targeted at particular audiences, conservatives for sure. Um, and even religious conservatives, uh, that, that religious conservatives have come in for more than their fair share of misinformation. Um, and so for me, when I, when I look at some of that evidence, when I read some of those studies, it helps me have some compassion and some empathy, um, because it helps me realize, uh, I, I had, I had people in my life, I had experiences in my life um, that equipped me to think critically, um, that equipped me to be able to look at misinformation um, and to discern the veracity of a claim. Um, and, and I know that there's millions and millions of people out there who haven't been as privileged as I have to, to be able to, to have those experiences, those people uh, to, to help them do that. And so if, if you don't have those experiences, those people around you to help you do that, and then if on top of that, you're being disproportionately targeted with misinformation, with information designed to uh, prop up and justify your existing understanding of the world, your existing ideologies, it's only human to uh, be susceptible to that. And so... It is not a fair fight, Jim, at all. Uh, like I said, billions and billions of dollars have been spent for decades to confuse the public on climate change. Um, and, you know, I have no doubt on a lot of other scientifically relevant uh, realities like COVID, like the vaccine. Um, and, and religious conservatives have come in for more than their fair share of it. Um, and, and that is just despicable. Um, but it also, for me, it, it helps me cultivate some compassion and some empathy for my community, which, which um, has really, really struggled with how to make sense of this new information ecosystem that we're a part of, where we're all just awash with infinite messages from infinite sources all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's a very important point, Kyle. And, you know, the, the uh, Jesus text on this. Uh, is not, don't lie so much. It says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the opposite of not knowing the truth is captivity, not just lying all the time. So we've got to go deeper than just uh, accusing people of lying. It's, they're captive. They're, they're no longer free. They're, they're, they're subject to falsehoods. And, you know, Jesus is, is, is calling us uh, to truth for the sake of people's freedom, people that we love and care about. And you tell in your story pretty powerfully how your relationship with an older brother and people in your lives, it, it's relationships where we I feel where we love and trust people that are critical here, not just uh, getting them to watch other news sources. That's important too. But the truth is about tr freedom and captivity. It's about relationships. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, lies are oppressive. Um, and, uh, the truth is liberating. And what else does Jesus say about truth? He says, I am the truth. Um, so I, I do think part of it is, uh, I think the American church has desperately lost the thread of the gospel in, in a lot of ways. 
um, which has made us more susceptible to lies and misinformation. Um, because when we know Jesus, when we're walking with Jesus, um, we, we know the truth, uh, because we're walking in the shadow of the truth. Um, so uh, I, th- I think that's part of it too, Jim, is that I, I just, I, I think the American church has lost the thread profoundly and, um, I don't know what it's going to take revival. Um, but we, we need to find the thread again because we've lost it. It's John's gospel where, uh, truth comes up so much. It's also where light comes up, truth and light come up so much in John's God gospel, which, which goes back to the, the point you were making earlier about, uh, you know, is there a new generational evangelical movement? Um, uh, you know, the statistic, 80% of evangelicals uh, voted for Donald Trump twice, both times. But put that in the context of young people, eight in 10 parents <laughs> of a lot of young evangelical people, high school, college age, voted for Donald Trump. And that's become a, a big issue for a lot of those young people because of this truth question. I mean, they see Jesus saying these things, they see what the Gospels are calling us to, and they see their parents uh, and others in their churches going for a very politicized, you might say, ideological, cultural Gospel, more than uh, the teachings of Jesus here. So so you've talked to hundreds of young people like that, uh, probably thousands now. And um, is, there, is there kind of a the data isn't clear on this because how do you pull people who no longer will say they're evangelical or say they're born again? So it's hard. Some are post evangelical or I love the word adjacent evangelical. So, so there's a whole, there's a new generation here and on climate and other issues like the treatment of, of refugees, for example, or even the demonizing of LGBTQ people, what their parents are been not captive to, let's use, use the word, doesn't feel like the gospel to, to them. How are they wrestling with that? And is there a new generational evangelical movement rising up? Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the fundamental differences between older evangelicals and rising generations of evangelicals is our parents and grandparents were preoccupied with orthodoxy, um, right thinking. Uh, how, how do we think in the right way? How do we assent to the proper doctrines um, and creeds and confessions? And that's important. We, we have to have our thinking right. Um, but I think younger Christians are much more preoccupied with orthopraxy. How, how, do, we, how do we live rightly? Um, if, our, if our doctrine and our creeds and confessions are intellectually perfect, but they lead to silence on climate change, to the hatred and demonization of LGBTQ plus people, um, then it's a clanging symbol, uh, as, as Paul said. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter unless um, the practical application of good theology is good things for people, is, is actual good news for people who need good news and for a world that needs good news. So I think younger Christians are, are frustrated and fed up with um, a church that is preoccupied with right thinking and doesn't care enough about right living and right doing. Um, and I think young people are, are choosing different paths in how to respond to that. Like you said, there is a, a large contingent of people who grew up in the evangelical community who have connections to evangelicalism from their, their upbringing and childhood who have walked away. They're, they're ex-evangelical, they're post-evangelical, they're, they're joining the nons. Um, 
And other young Christians with the same story are um, choosing to join other denominations, um, staying in the faith, staying Christian, um, trying to follow Jesus still, but not affiliating with kind of the cultural, theological, spiritual movement of modern evangelicalism. And still more are choosing to stay uh, and and to push their churches, their communities forward um, out of out of kind of the prison of orthodoxy alone into orthodoxy plus orthopraxy. Um, how do we how do we take this beautiful thinking that uh, that we do so well? Many of us do so well, and actually put flesh on it so that it looks like Jesus in the world because the story of Jesus. Um, is not the story of creeds and confessions written down on stone tablets that are sent from heaven to come down. It's a story of a God who became human, who put on flesh and bone, wrapped himself in skin and, and walked around and healed and loved um, and, and lived rightly. That's the story of the gospel, living rightly. Um, so, uh, you know, to your question, I don't know <laughs> um, if there is, if we can definitively say that there is, yes, a movement of young Christians who are rising up and who will reform the evangelical movement. Um, I do know that many young people are wrestling mightily with how to affiliate with the faith of, of their childhood. Um, and, and they're making different choices. And um, I hope, I hope that there will be a, a reformation within evangelicalism um, led by young people mostly. And, you know, a lot of like-minded older folks, um, who want to see the evangelical movement be more about what we are against, um, and more about who we are for, uh, and who we stand beside of and, and who we show Christ's love to. In your book, you note that a 2015 poll from Pew found that white evangelicals were the least likely religious group to agree that climate change is primarily caused by human activity. Just 28% said so at the time. But in 2020, you note, five years later, that number was up to 44%. So there are signs of that kind of change. I'm concerned about the young people uh, that are leaving faith altogether um, uh, because of what they see uh, religion practicing or not practicing. And you mentioned the nuns. So many of students at Georgetown in my classes are you know, this category, none of the above. They check their religious affiliation category and it's none of the above. But even the nuns who are none of the above, uh, I don't find that to be a secular group. Uh, most believe in God or something bigger than themselves. And after a, a 13 weeks in a semester with, with them and they hear a different kind of faith, I, I often say that the answer to bad religion isn't, you know, no religion, but better religion or truth true faith, you know, and when they hear about, uh, uh, you know, your kind of movement or the black churches or even Catholic social teaching they hear for the first time, even as Georgetown students, uh, they're, they're drawn to it again. So how, how is it that it's how to, what I think going on right now is a test of our democracy. It's a test of the authenticity of our faith. It's also a test of whether a new generation will will involve themselves in faith communities or not. That's a huge issue for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. G Gen Z especially, I think, is deeply spiritual, um, even mystical. Uh, they, they, like you said, many of them affirm a belief in something bigger than themselves. Um, and they're also deeply motivated by injustice in the world. Um, and I, I think you're right. I... I 
I think there's an opportunity there for the church. Uh, there is so much hand wringing in the church about um, why so many young people are leaving. And I think, you know, all we have to do is listen to young people when they tell us why they're leaving. Um, because a lot of young people, they don't want to leave Jesus necessarily or God, um, but they don't like what Jesus's people are doing and, and the institution that claims Jesus is doing in the world. They don't like what it's doing to creation. They don't like what it's doing to their friends. They don't like what it's doing to their neighbors. Um, and it's an opportunity because even if the church isn't all that attractive, Jesus is. <laughs> Jesus is compelling. Jesus is winsome. Jesus is attractive. The gospel is the greatest, most compelling uh, story ever told. Um, and, and somehow the church lost that. Somehow the church forgot how to tell that story, how to tell the, the most scandalous, awe-inspiring uh, graceful, compassionate, beautiful, winsome story that the world has ever known. Somehow we turned it into um, all the rules and regulations we have to follow and, and all the things that we're against and all of the walls that we build up to keep outsiders out and insiders in. Um, if the church could just recover the, the radical power of the gospel, um, I think young people are really, really hungry for that. Um, and I know there are, there are pastors, there are leaders who are doing that. Um, and we need to see a lot more of that. Preach it, preach it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me quote you on hand wringing here, if I can, since you raised that. There's so much, this is Kyle talking. Uh, there's so much hand wringing, wringing happening in the churches. Why are the young people leaving their churches? If you want your young, young people to stick around, Stay, start talking about the questions that they are talking about with their friends on Friday and Saturday night. The existential crises that they're grappling with. Give them a Jesus-shaped answer to the things that matter most to them, like climate action. And then watch them not only stick around, but lead. Watch them reignite your church in a way you never imagined. That's a hopeful statement. Yeah, I believe it. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen what can happen when you empower young Jesus followers to uh, address climate change because of their faith and not in spite of it. I think so many young people feel this tension between their faith and their concern for things like climate change, other justice issues, because there's a implicit or explicit message from their church that um, the two are mutually exclusive. You cannot bring that into the church. It's too political. It's too controversial. So young people are marching with Sierra Club uh, on the weekend, and then they're going to church, and they're not talking about it. Um, they're not bringing it up with their with their uh, pastors. They're not uh, pushing for uh, you know, classes on climate change or climate uh, friendly practices in the church because it's uh, it's not uh, allowed, and and then a lot of them just make the logical they they come to the logical conclusion that well I guess this community isn't for me and I'm I'm just going to leave, um, but I have seen what happens when you equip young people to uh, address the things that matter to them um, from a, a position of, of deeply grounded faith, deeply, deeply rooted faith. I mean, I think so many pastors and so many Christian leaders have bought into this lie that 
somehow being concerned about social justice is woke and it's not Christian. Um, and so there's a fear that if they go down that road or if they give young people permission to care about the things they already care about, somehow it's caving to the culture. When in fact, this is who we are. This is our Christian heritage. I mean, look at the social movements over the last uh, centuries and the church has has been driving almost all of them or has been supporting and in solidarity with almost all of them. Jesus himself was a, a political dissident who was executed by the state for insurrection. The gospel is political, whether we like it or not. So, uh, w- what we need to do as Christian leaders is help young people understand this, that this is part of who we are. This is part of our heritage. This is part of our ancestry. Um, and there are ways to engage in these issues that are distinct, that are distinctly Christian, that are distinctly Christ-shaped. And what a gift that will be to the world uh, when Christians show up with the hope of the gospel, with the love of Jesus, with the faith of centuries of uh, witnesses that have gone before us, if the church actually brings the gifts of the church to these issues that are roiling the world, that would be a profound gift to the world and to these movements. I like the way that you say perhaps the best reaction or best response to both secularism or everything being secularized and to the cultural, political conformity of the churches is to, you call it leaning, leaning into faith, leaning into this radical faith that you're now talking about. That That's a better response to the uh, secularism and the cultural conformity that we see all, all around us. And I like that. But even when you can preach this, as you are doing powerfully today, there are times when, uh, as my mentor Desmond Tutu taught me that, there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism sometimes fades, and hope is a choice you have to make over and over again. In 2021, you write, you were running on fumes, praying for countries to take action to protect the planet at a UN conference and similar battles in the U.S. Congress, uh, both tough fights. And you write about feeling the existential weight of climate grief. You talk about being lonely, feeling em- em- empty. Even when you believe as powerfully as you do these things and have just preached to us about, how do you assuage those feelings? How do you, how, how do you, what advice do you offer to, to people who might be feeling the same way? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that section from my book is in a, a section where I talk about the necessity of community, that this work is too hard to do alone. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about Christian hope in particular. I, I love, I love what you said, um, that of what you learned from Desmond Tutu, that hope is a choice you have to make over and over again. I think that's right on. And I think one of the gifts of Christian hope is that we don't have to make that choice in isolation. Um, we make that choice together. We can, we can choose hope together. And there are times when I'm not going to have the strength to choose hope. And that's when I'm going to need you to choose hope for me and to hold hope for me. Um, because I know that there are going to be times when you can't choose hope either. And, and I'm going to choose hope for you. I'm going to hold hope for you. I think that's one of the profound gifts of the Christian community is that um, we, don't have to, we don't have to muster up um, hope by ourselves all the time. Um, we can hold hope for each other. Uh, and I found that to be true 
with the relationships that I formed in the climate work that I've done, uh, I have needed to lean on uh, my church, on the people that I'm doing this work with often um, to hold hope for me. Uh, there's that story in the Old Testament when Moses is holding up uh, his staff while the Israelites are fighting a battle and his arms get tired and he, he can't hold them up anymore. So his arms are held up for him. Um, I think it's a powerful image um, for us too, that all of us, um, we have to hold each other's arms up sometimes. We have to hope collectively. Um, and you're right. Hope is not optimism. Hope is not dewy-eyed. It's not saccharine. It's not rose-colored glasses. Um, I think we do a great disservice to the victims and the, the the those oppressed by climate change when we turn hope into something false. Um, so we, we have to approach hope fearfully. Um, we can't get to hope too quickly. And the the... The scriptures hold out to us a formula. The Hebrew understanding of hope had to move through lament first. When we look at hope in the Gospels, um, it only gets to hope after it moves through lament first. I think the American church is very, very bad at lament. <laughs> we, we are triumphalism. Uh, we often want to jump to hope right away, but it's not grounded in anything. It's not rooted in anything real. So um, it's not really hope. So uh, we have to learn how to actually lament to give voice um, to our fears and to sit with them, to make friends with our fear. Um, cause it's only then that we can actually move to hope. And then we have to hope together in community. And to acknowledge, uh, the truths about our own nation, both the bad and the good and not make laws that literally say nothing should be taught in schools that make anybody feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so you end your book on a very hopeful note, this note, and I want to end this conversation. And the two, you wrote a beautiful letter to your unborn grandchild. And the letter takes place in the future, 2066, when you write, environmental atrocities that were allowed to persist for generations were finally addressed head on, you say. Uh, how hopeful are you that this will actually happen? And before we go today, can you give our listeners uh, one or two actions that they can take uh, to become involved in climate action? Yeah, yeah, that that epilogue was a really powerful experience to write. I think partly because it it forced me to exercise the muscle of imagination. Um and I I've I've come to believe that imagination I think plays a more significant role in climate action than we might think. Um it, it's hard to feel motivated to work for a future that we can't imagine. And I think so many of us have only heard or mostly heard stories of a future of cataclysm, of doom, of apocalypse, of loss, right? So, so much of the future when we think about climate change is shrouded in grief, in despair, and in loss, which are not motivating emotions. Um, but what if, what if the future we create is better than we think it could be, or is better than we even imagined. Um, what, what, if we, what if we get this right and we end up creating a more just, uh, a healthier, safer world for us and the people that we love? Um, that's not something I think about a lot, but I, I think I need to do that more often. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did imagine what could it look like if we get this right? Um, and you're asking me now, am I hopeful uh, that that future is coming? Uh, again, I'm, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna parse that difference between hope and optimism, and I'm gonna say that yes, I choose hope. I, I choose I choose to be hopeful that um, 
we've seen significant progress the last couple of years alone. I mean, federal investment through the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the CHIPS Act um, in 2021 and 2022 tripled federal spending on um, clean energy uh, investments uh, over the next 10 years than in the previous decade. Um, That's a huge deal. We are seeing... uh, you know the cost of renewable energy come down exponentially, um, and and we're only gonna we're only gonna keep uh, seeing that. So I am hopeful that we are we are on a trajectory that's gonna get us to a future where we are off fossil fuels, um, we are healthier, we are safer, um, and where the climate is more dangerous than it used to be. Both things can be true at the same time. Um, And I think the task now for Christians is to exercise that muscle of imagination um, so that we can imagine how to be as resilient as possible in that new world, and we can imagine how to find as much joy and delight and love as possible in that new future. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a, f- a few ways that people can can try to live into that future. Um, I, I kind of end my book with with a couple of chapters that deal with kind of two sides of the climate action coin. Um, one is is personal lifestyle changes, right? All these things that we've heard about: um, eating less meat, driving less often, taking fewer flights. Um, all of those kind of personal consumer choices that that we can that we can make, and um, you know, rather than run down a laundry list of them, I, I think a lot of us know what those are. And there's a great website called Project Drawdown that you could go to to find evidence-based resources for the most effective choices that you can make as consumers to reduce your impact on climate change. So that's wonderful. And in my book, I, I frame these choices not necessarily as as maybe the most effective. Um, climate actions, but as spiritual disciplines, as disciplines that form us and our hearts after God's heart, which is a heart for creation. So engage in these choices and these practices mindfully and and watch what it does to you, to your spirit. Um, And the the other thing is um, advocacy. We, we We have to be bringing our faith into the public square and demanding of our elected officials that uh, they do everything they can to address the threat of climate change, to move us toward a clean energy future, um, and and to do it in the name of Jesus, because that's who we are. Um, and, and that's at least what motivates me to do it in the first place, that I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. And in a world that's warming, I don't know how to follow Jesus without demanding that my elected officials um, enact policy that's going to help me live a life in this world where I can better love God and better love and serve my neighbor. Um, so we, we have to be lifting up our voices with our elected officials and you don't have to be an expert. I think a lot of people who might be, uh, inexperienced in advocacy think, oh, I need to know bill numbers. I need to know specifics. You don't, I promise. All you have to do is share your own story about why you care about climate change and to share it often over and over and over again. And if we all do that consistently, I promise that it would change everything. Well, uh, lifestyle and advocacy, both. And more details about both are in Kyle's book, Following Jesus in a Warming World. So read the book. Your final comments remind me of a discussion I had in class last spring. A mass shooting had happened the day before class, and so we talked about it in class. And one of my students uh, said, I just, I just feel so jaded. I mean, this keeps happening. And even in this class, it's happened during this semester. 
more than once police shootings and mass shootings. I just feel so jaded. I don't know what to do about feeling so jaded. And I let that go for the moment. We had an hour's conversation. Then I came back to her and I said, Elizabeth, do you want, and all of you, do you want your generation to be known as the jaded generation? And she just shook her head, no, 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 no. And the whole class was shaking, no, no, we don't want to be. Well, to feel these things is is very normal and real. But your generation, I I teach this class because I want you to be, be the ones uh, to make those changes. And they're all shaking their heads. But to be jaded is something that's normal to feel, but you can't stick with that because cynicism, the powers that be, the powers and principalities, they want us to be cynical and give up on changing things and just walk away. So I'll just say, uh, Kyle Myers, Scott, you give me hope. You're a hopeful sign for me. So I'm grateful for this conversation we had today. Thank you, Jim. Me too. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.